listening to Podcasting the Arts, Numbers, Income, Cash. The title of the podcast, Panic, speaks to the emotion that many artists feel when thinking about finances. Ironically, Panic wants to help. Panic is a series of podcasts and a website free of cost that hosts tips, templates, and insights for artists about financial literacy. Leave the panic to us. I'm Michaela, And I'm Nina. Welcome to another episode of Panic, where we will be taking a look at investments and hopefully get some tips on how to grow your hard-earned savings. Investing can be extremely difficult and intimidating. The combination of a decent income, financial literacy, and financial discipline is very rare, which is why we've brought in Tim Zeigler to help guide us through this topic. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Tim. My pleasure. What do you want our listeners to know about you? I used to be an actor. I still am kind of an actor. I audition every now and again. I'm an equity member. I'm an actor member. But uh, after a theater career that ended in probably 2017, I became uh, kind of inspired by the world of investments. And so I, I went out and, and became, I guess what you would call a financial advisor or a financial security advisor, but a person who deals with investments, among other things. Nice. That's awesome, Tim. So before we begin with our regularly scheduled programming, we like to ask all our guests something just to get to know them a little bit better. So I think this is a little bit topical given the time we're in, but we'd love to know what you think of meme stocks such as GameStop. <laughs> oh, yeah. GameStop. <laughs> I knew that we were going to talk about GameStop at some point today. OK, what's my take on GameStop? Um, Okay, there are so many angles to, at which to at which to take this. So GameStop, the, the impression of GameStop is that this is an example of uh, redditors or what we I guess what we would call the working class people feeding it to hedge funds. And there's a really great narrative that's been created behind that where we say, yeah, we're you know we're taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. I think that that is naive. Uh, what we heard is that there were two funds in particular, Melvin Capital and uh, Citron Research, who were short GameStop. We, what we didn't hear was all of the funds that were long GameStop. So, yes, a whole bunch of people who were in early made a whole bunch of money, I hope. The downside of that is all of the people who saw it at $480 or $400 a share or $350 a share and decided to buy then. Now, as we say, as, as we speak, GameStop is kind of back on its way up right now. For some reason, it's trading back at $270 per share. Uh, there is no one in the world who can explain why it's trading at $270 per share. But uh, so it, it's a pretty safe assumption to say it's not going to be trading this high a year from now. That's my take on GameStop. That's the short take on GameStop. I could talk about this for a longer time than this, but really I'm sure you here. could. And noted, <laughs> I guess I will not be investing in GameStop after this podcast. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to switch things up from our regular format, and we're actually going to open up the conversation with something that comes from a listener. So Erica Mori asks, What's the best way to start investing if you're an artist with virtually no understanding of how the stock market works? Also, how can I learn? That's a great question. 
Um, the simple answer is to talk to an advisor. That would be if you go into your bank and you say, I have some money to invest, they'll send you into the back room to talk with the person who deals with the fancy conversations and stuff like that. Or you find somebody like me, or you do the thing where you post on Facebook and you say, hey, does anybody have an investment person that they trust? Um, what I would not recommend, and I had planned on saying this before that first question, is taking your financial tips from place like Reddit or uh, market pundits on television or anything like that. They, not because they don't know what they're talking about. They do know what they're talking about. They just don't know your situation. And there is no such thing as financial advice that is, there are exceptions to every rule, but generally speaking, there is no such thing as financial advice that is true for everybody. Um, so if you want to have a conversation about your finances, I would recommend finding a professional. That's awesome. Thanks. And now we'll go back to a regularly scheduled programming. What types of factors affect like what types of investments we should choose? Should we consider things like the duration or the amount that we should invest? Yeah, yeah, all of it. Um, a big one is your personal anxiety levels. I don't like the word risk when it comes to stocks in particular, when it comes to investments, because risk by kind of definition, when we think of the word risk, we think of rolling a dice or we think of betting on the outcome of the game or we think of something that's incredibly risky. I like the word volatile. Volatile is the, when you look at a stock chart, you'll see what, what, what we describe as the wiggles, where it goes up and then it goes down and goes up and, and there's seemingly no kind of reason why it goes up and then why it goes down on a day-to-day -day basis. That's just based on, that's when the admin person at that particular firm decided to hit the sell button. But if you are able to tolerate the anxiety of volatility, that's a, that's a big factor. So your anxiety levels are a big one. Your time horizon is obviously a big one. Uh, generally speaking, market, market volatility is kind of irrelevant unless you need your money tomorrow. If you need your money tomorrow and the market tanks 5% tomorrow, that sucks. If you don't need your money for, 10, for 20 years and the market goes down 5% tomorrow, but it goes up 5% the next day, it, it's like nothing happened. So time horizon really matters. Your age matters. And this is an interesting one because age is often linked to time horizon. But the big thing about age is that it's a lot harder to make up the difference. If you, if you have a really big loss in investments at the age of 30, you generally speaking have a long runway of earnings power ahead of you. Whereas at the age of 65, you're maybe not going to be working for another 30 years. And if you lose a whole bunch of money on an investment, harder to make it up. Um, th those are the three big ones. There's more than just that. But those, I, I would say, are the most important. And the biggest one being your anxiety levels. <laughs> nice. That's a really interesting take. I never thought to consider my anxiety with money when I was um, thinking well, what about the, What they'll say is risk tolerance. If you go and talk to somebody about it, they'll say, what's your risk tolerance? And again, it goes back to the theme. I hate the word risk. Right. Anxiety levels describes it better. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
So what about if we're thinking about investment accounts, um, like what about a TFSA or an RRSP? What's the difference between those and how do we know which ones we should be choosing? Excellent question. This is ever since the TFSA was invented, this has been the conversation, the conversation to have. Should I invest in a TFSA or should I invest in an RRSP? The big difference between TFSA and RRSP, think of it this way. The R in RRSP stands for taxable at retirement. doesn't actually just work with me. R in RRSP stands for taxable at retirement. The T in TFSA stands for taxable today. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, I have 10 grand in savings. I've done really well. I have 10 grand. And I'm trying to choose whether to use an RRSP or a TFSA. In example one, I use an RRSP. What happens? So I made... I'm an actor. I, I did what an average actor does. I did probably, I made 30 grand last year, let's say. If I deposit 10 grand into an RRSP, I get a deduction for $10,000. So when it comes time to do taxes, I only have to tell the government I made $20,000. So it can help for my taxation today. Your growth is non-taxable on an annual basis. So you, you get what's called tax-deferred growth throughout the years. The downside is that let's say in 30 years or 35 years, your $10,000 has become $100,000, which is not, not particularly abnormal. So your $10,000 has become $100,000. Not only is the $90,000 of growth taxable at that time, the $10,000 you originally put in is also taxable at that time. So it's really good today, but kind of sucks down the line. It's the, the timing that's best for an RRSP is if you have a really good year. Say if you book a TV series or two TV series or you, I don't know, win the lottery or something. I don't know. Something that helps you make an abnormally high, large amount of money puts you into $250,000 last year. That would put you into a really high tax bracket for that year. If you can deposit or contribute $10,000 or $20,000 or $30,000 into an RRSP at that time, because you're in a higher tax bracket at that time, it makes a lot of sense. And you will probably be in a lower tax bracket when you retire. That's RRSP. Switch, switch rails. TFSA. I've got $10,000. I put it into a TFSA. I made it this year. I made this $10,000 this year. I still have to tell the government I made the same amount of money. So again, in this example, I made $30,000 last year. I still have to tell the government I made $30,000 and I'll get taxed on that $30,000 as normal. The difference is that I don't pay tax on any of that growth. So again, we take that 30 to 35 year example. My $10,000 becomes $100,000 in 30 to 35 years. I don't pay tax on the $90,000 of growth. And I also don't pay tax on the $10,000 I put in. Very, very, very powerful. So they are both great for tax deferral in as much as... Uh, 
you're not paying tax on an annual basis based on growth. You're deferring the taxation to further down the line. RRSP, you have to pay tax on. TFSA, you get taxed up front and not at the back end. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That was really great. Okay, good. <laughs> I operate on the principle that if I can't explain it to a 10-year-old, then I don't understand it well enough myself. And that's one that I have difficulty explaining to a 10-year-old. I do understand it myself. If anyone leaves this podcast understanding the difference between an RRSP and a TFSA, I feel like I've done a service to the world. That was definitely a really great, concise way to put it. And using real numbers definitely helps. Just to get back to the topic of investing, could you give us some examples of typically safer investments and some examples of riskier investments? Again, that risk word. I don't like that risk word because and, and I'll tell you exactly why I don't like the risk word is because it's misleading. What the average investment house will tell you is that without any kind of qualifications, they will tell you that a stock is riskier than a bond and a GIC is safer than anything. A GIC is safe in as much as it's not volatile. But is it safe if your GIC cannot grow? Right now, GICs, I mean, fairly recently, GICs were yielding about 0.8% per year. Is that safe? If you're looking to retire on this money, is it safe to invest in something in which it's not growing? I think, it, I think the word safe and the word risk can be misleading, but uh, I understand what the question is. So t GICs are the safest investment in the world. They are guaranteed by a bank. That said, you're not going to make any money on a GIC. I, I don't recommend GICs for really anybody. I, generally speaking, if there is something that you're looking to do, there is a better investment vehicle than a GIC. Um, the next level up would be, and there are a whole bunch of other stuff. There are fancier products, but generally speaking, I'm going to talk about three of them. I'm going to talk about GICs. I'm going to talk about bonds, and I'm going to talk about stocks. And uh, I want you to understand that mutual funds can contain bonds, can contain stocks. Sometimes they can contain kind of GIC sort of things, but that's generally what I recommend people start with. But I like to talk about stock risk or equity risk like this, because there are multiple types of equity investing. I can buy the stock of a hypothetical rinky-dink mining company that's an exploration company in Yellowknife that is looking for gold. It's very cheap stock. If they hit gold, I will make 10x my investment. But what's most likely to happen is that I sit in the investment for three years, they don't find anything, and then at the end of the three years, it slowly bleeds out and eventually goes bankrupt. That's one type of investing. Another type of investing is looking at, pick a company, pick a, pick a big company that we all know, TD Bank. You look at TD Bank and, and you say, I'm going to bet because this is technically, this is sort of like gambling. You say, you look at TD Bank and you say, yeah, I'm going to bet that TD Bank is going to continue to operate as a bank efficiently. Also gambling, also a risk but not the same level of risk that we were just talking about before with the mining company. 
Now, this is where we talk about diversification. If you make 30 investment statements like that with 30 different companies that are all well-established, I think that Amazon is going to continue to function properly. I think that Bell Canada is going to continue to be Bell Canada and people are going to continue to go to the store and stuff like that. You can build a very effective equity portfolio that is technically risky because it's stocks and not bonds or GICs, but it's less risky than what stocks can be and what our impression of stocks is. It's interesting, when I talk to clients, one of the big questions I face often is, is there a possibility of me losing all of my money? And the answer to that question is, theoretically, if TD Bank and Amazon and Google and Netflix and Bell and all of these companies, these massive companies that we all know and use on a regular basis, if all of them go bankrupt at the same time, then yeah, it's theoretically possible for you to lose all of your money. But I cannot begin to describe to you how unlikely that is. A typically safer investment, it depends on who you are. It depends on what you're looking to do. If you are terrified of losing money, then something like a bond fund or a GIC or something like that is probably the right thing. If you are looking to retire, a safer investment is what we would call an established company's equity. Without talking to anyone personally, that's, that's as kind of broad, broad as I can say. I was also wondering if you have any opinions about trends going on this year, about any trends or industries that may be booming. Are there some industries that are just always going to be volatile and some that are always going to have consistent growth? Or is that not a thing? Nope, that exists. That absolutely exists. Tech companies are generally more volatile than telcos. Tel telco, telecommunications, Bell and Rogers and that kind of thing. Um, this is because the tech companies, we value, we don't, okay, this is, this is a principle of investing in, in terms of the stock market. We don't value companies based on what they've done in the past. It's relevant and we, we kind of value companies based on what they've done in the past because it provides us a track record going forward for what we think they're going to do in the future. That's the most important factor that goes into a company's valuation or a stock's valuation is what we think they're going to do six months, a year, two years, three years, five years down the line. And this is where we get into volatility because there are a lot of tech companies out there right now that don't have a lot, they don't make a lot of money, but their runway for growth is jaw-dropping. Um, an, an example of a company like that would be, uh, I, I don't know, you, you pick any of the tech platforms that you use today, it would be something like that, Airbnb or uh, Uber or something like that. Companies that do not make money, but that are slowly taking over the world. And a bull, a bull is a person who is optimistic about an investment, a bull would say, they're going to continue to gain market share. And once they own the entire world, they will be able to have pricing power and they will be able to make a lot of money and everything will be really, really great for investors. The bear, the bear is the opposite of the bull. The bear 
is more pessimistic about an investment, the bearer would say, this company doesn't make money. There is no guarantee that this company is ever going to make money. And so what you have is a really wide range of possibilities for what the future may look like. This contributes to volatility. So something like a coronavirus hits, and we look at a company like Uber, and we think, are, are they going to survive? Are they going to go bankrupt? Are they going to be able to raise money? Or will this contribute to their taking over the world? We don't really know. That can lead to wild volatility. Whereas a company that's, again, more established, a Bell Canada or something like that, is not going to, you know, we're still going to use our phones. We're still going to go to the grocery store. We're still going to buy toilet paper, something topical for what happened last year. There are certain things that we are going to buy and we are where demand is relatively uh, predictable. And then there is stuff where demand is more speculative. And anytime the further speculative you get, the higher the risk reward ratio is, the higher the range of outcomes is. And I have one more follow-up question. When you're buying stocks and you're starting to build up your portfolio, what's a good indicator that it's time to sell? Oh, man. This is why I like to recommend mutual funds because it, uh, you effectively outsource that type of decision-making. Let's take GameStop as an example. People bought it. Let's say, let's take the most optimistic route. Let's say you bought towards the bottom. You bought it $15 per share, and then you're looking at your, your thing at $300 per share. You know it might go higher, but it might go lower, and you're kind of in that nowhere place of should I sell or should I hold on or what should I do? I don't know. I have no reason why it's $300 per I have no reason why it's $20 per share. Uh, GameStop is, I mean, I'm talking a little bit outside of my my scope. I have not done a deep dive on on GameStop or anything like that. But generally speaking, it's not like GameStop makes a whole lot of money as a company. There are ways of valuing companies at, you know, 20 times forward earnings or 10 times forward earnings or stuff like that. But then even that kind of gets thrown on its head. So we're in a low interest rate environment. Does that mean that a company like this should trade at 10 times earnings? Or can we expand that to 15 times earnings? Well, it's got some recurring revenue. It's a very complicated question. When to sell? When should I buy? When should I sell? And people who read charts, there are technical analysts will say, well, you want to buy when it, when it on a flat base and you want to sell when it reaches a standard deviation above the 50-day moving average. It's, it's complicated. Um, That's why I recommend mutual funds, because you outsource that decision-making. People who know far more than I do and far more than pretty much anybody else out there get to make the decision about when to sell. And I, 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 I trust them. <laughs> and for artists that are just starting to learn about investing, where do they go? Do they just go to their bank and ask about their mutual funds? Is that the best way to get started? Um, yeah, that's one way of doing it. You go to a bank, you, again, you can post on Facebook, you know, or whatever social media thing you're using. You can do the, hey, hive mind, tell me your favorite person. Tell me you're the person that you like. 
and you'll get a whole bunch of options that way. I like that just because um, there, there's a personal touch to it. Um, one of the downsides of, of going to the bank is that, generally speaking, when you go to the bank, the person who works with you will be promoted before they talk to you again, or they will be in a different position before they talk to you again. And so every time you go to the bank, you wind up with a different person and you have to kind of go through your entire life story every time you talk to them. So it can often make a lot of sense to go with somebody who's more independent. I think the best way of doing it is to, is to ask your friends who they're doing it with, frankly. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Tim. You gave us a really great comprehensive overview on like how to invest. And if our listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you? TimothyZigler.com, T-I-M-O-T-H-Y-Z-I-E-G-L-E-R.com. That's my website. And there's also kind of this budding YouTube channel, which is very young, but up and coming. (laughs) Great. Um, We'll be sure to link that in the description so our listeners can take a look at that. And also, don't forget to visit our website, which is artspanicpodcast.com. It will include a transcript of this episode, as well as more tips and templates for planning your finances. And of course, don't forget to join us for our next episode, where we will be talking with our special guest, Rob Brill, on how to manage your money. 